来嘛来嘛，不然输了等你的，不然输了等你的，来嘛来嘛，哎来来来，不然输了等你的，好下一。Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a member at the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton. Today, I'm talking with Megan Thomas, an associate professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, about Orientalists, propagandists, and ilustrados: Filipino scholarship in the end of Spanish colonialism. Published in 2012 by the University of Minnesota Press and republished this year, 2016, by Anvil Publishing in Manila, with an introduction by Caroline Howe. Megan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You were a student of Ben Anderson, who is fondly remembered and dearly missed by so many Southeast Asianists. Maybe we can start by paying homage to Ben. How did he get you interested in the Philippines, and in what ways did he contribute to your preparations for the research that led to this book? I'm absolutely delighted to be able to say a couple of words about him.、Um, like many, he, my studies were profoundly affected by him, and I certainly would never have written on this topic were it not for his、um, interesting me in it. I was a graduate student at Cornell, and I had gone to Cornell partially because I was interested in colonialism and nationalism, and had read his imagined communities, as so many people have done. But I didn't at all anticipate working in Southeast Asia, much less knowing wanting that I wanted to work in the Philippines.、Um, but I was taking all of the classes that he offered, and of course, many of the readings were Southeast Asian readings. And in those classes, I was especially interested in the Philippines. Some of it was the particular readings that we were doing at the time, and some of it too was realizing,、uh, to my horror and shame, that I was an American, got a what's considered to be a decent education in the U.S., and knew virtually nothing about Philippine history.、Uh, Of course, this、uh, once U.S. colony. So that that began my interest in the Philippines,、um, and I thought initially that I would write on the U.S. colonial period. But Ben really encouraged me to push back and think about the Spanish period, and it helped me、um, in part because I was I was coming from I did an undergrad in lit. I was interested in political theory, and I was had also read. This great book by Edward Said called Orientalism, and I don't know whether Ben anticipated or not that when I started reading these writings by these late 19th century Filipino intellectuals, I would be puzzled by the kinds of writing that they were doing. I expected them to be writing much more consistently in ways that were political.、Um, And of course, they did have political writings, and of course, all kind of writing is political.、Uh, but I was surprised to find the the ways that they were writing in these、um, genres that I didn't expect to be、uh, used in the ways that they did. And Ben's、um, really a fantastic teacher,、uh, and part of that was that he he really encourages you to look at the things that. Don't make sense. That seem weird.、Uh, that seem 
unusual. And of course, his encyclopedic knowledge uh, helps tremendously. Um, he also was an, a very patient reader of many chapter drafts and and later drafts of the book. So I I owe much that is of value about the book to him. And of course, all of the shortcomings are mine. Uh, but he really, um, as I think uh, any reader of the book would would suspect that strong um, that strong influence of his uh, his guidance in the book. And as a true student of Ben, you worked in, uh, as far as I can tell, at least four languages: English, German, Spanish, and Tagalog. Were you familiar with all of those languages before you <laughs> um, began using the source materials? I will say. Um, Worked in is a, that can mean a lot of things. So I actually went to, I mean, my German is almost non-existent. I took it in high school, but, you know, it's enough to to figure out titles and things like that um, and basics. Spanish and Tagalog, I actually took, I started in graduate school once I figured out that I wanted to work on the Philippines. So I'm a very much a latecomer um, and and not surprisingly, I found it much more difficult to learn these languages than uh, the linguistically gifted Ben Anderson. <laughs> so he once told me that Spanish was a language that one can learn in 15 minutes, which I did not find to be true. But, um, but it was, uh, and in fact, I, I took Tagalog at Cornell you know, because it was offered, because I was planning to live in the Philippines for a year to do some field work um, because I wanted to learn how to speak a local language. Um, I didn't actually anticipate that I would use it so much in my research. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about one of the chapters where I did use my Tagalog a little bit um, as rudimentary as it is. Uh, so I was, um, really delighted that I was able to actually, you know, use that both in my research as well as, of course, in just day-to-day -day life. Um, that said, I, I, I have found my Tagalog has deteriorated significantly, so I'm looking to work on it to get it back again. But, um, but it was a, you know, that was another thing about reading these late 19th century Filipinos is realizing what incredible polymaths they were. Um, I mean, the, the numbers of languages that they possessed, and I don't mean in the, in a can get along with a dictionary way, but, but deeply, um, it's just incredible. And the, the kinds of ways that, that they were, um, writing and, and using different, uh, different kinds of writing practices was amazing to me too. Some of them more so than others, right? Some of them had um, certainly, uh, they, did, they didn't all have, you know, equivalent skills in all languages, but, um, but, but they were all polyglots. Well, let's get a stronger sense now of who they were and what they were doing. You've mentioned genres already, so perhaps we can start with those genres. If they weren't writing in the overtly political manner that you suggested a moment ago you'd anticipated, what were the, broadly speaking, what were the genres that they were using and in what manner were they using them? So I've already mentioned that um, 
you know, I was I was interested in Orientalism and interested in the ways that they were work, looking at that. And Orientalism is um, sometimes used to to describe a genre, and it's sometimes used in other ways. And and Edward Said's work is really the kind of founding of that of that way of thinking about what Orientalism is. Um, but more specifically. I am looking at this this way that they were writing in um, in what I call a kind of classic Orientalism or the 18th, 19th century attention to language and um, the way that that can unlock a understanding of the history of peoples. Um, and that was particularly interesting to these, um, to these young, elite, educated Filipinos um, who aren't often um, today considered Orientalists. Um, more often, they're considered propagandists and illustrados. Um, in other words, uh, propagandists referring to a more um, specific kind of political uh, movement called the propaganda movement, um, illustrados referring to them as um, enlightened or educated, um, and those those categories overlap and and have different senses today. But the the orientalism of their work was the part that really surprised me. And I should say it's not that they weren't writing politically, or or many of them were writing politically. Um, but what surprised me is how much of their writing seemed to, to be, if you will, um, really more more scholarly um, and, uh, than, than political. And so that's, and particularly how much of their scholarly writing was deeply invested in these um, Orientalist methods. Um, and so that the Orientalist kind of methods and genres um, are related also in this time to emerging methods and genres that are connected with much of what we um, think of as a kind of uh, forerunner of today's anthropology. Um, but in the late 19th century, all of these categories looked a little bit different. So it's not quite fair to say that it was anthropology at the time because that doesn't quite make sense. But it was um, there were practices that were connected to that. So um, as you know, I have different chapters on some of these different genres. I look at ethnology as a kind of genre in which they wrote folklore, philology, um, all of which are connected to some... Um, older practices of Orientalist um, attention to uh, language and connections between his, uh, people's histories and a newer set of kind of methods that are emerging around um, a, an idea of a science of race um, and race at this time, as many people have written about in, in different different ways. Many people have studied this, you know, the, the idea of race isn't necessarily emerging at this time. It's certainly an older idea. Um, but it is, it's changing, it's becoming uh, solidified, it's becoming embodied in a sense, um, 
meaning it's becoming uh, attached to kind of physiognomy in a way that it that it hadn't always been. And these young Filipinos are writing in and using those um, those ideas in ways that I found initially incredibly surprising. Um, I wasn't thinking, you know, I, I was thinking that I was going in to read these um, anti-colonial intellectuals, and I was surprised to find them writing and citing um, with approval, you know, these sort of theories of race and, um, you know, racial qualities and how to distinguish one race from another. That was quite confusing to me. Um, so again, those were some of the things that I um, that I wanted to, to try to pursue and unpack. And, and as I got into those questions, I realized they were, they were leading to more questions as, as often as they were le- leading to answers. Nevertheless, those questions are very productive ones because you do offer answers which are compelling and and powerful ones and we'll turn to some of them shortly. Uh, Thanks also for setting up the the genres and the contents of the book overall. We'll touch on some of the protagonists in a few moments as well. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you about the first chapter of the book, because although the book overall is concerned with these elite Filipino scholars and nationalists who went to Europe to study, the first chapter is really taken up with India. So why is that? And how does India become a part of the story that you're telling in the book about the Philippines? Um, You know, it's part of the reason for that is because I mean, there are a couple of different ways I would answer that, but they're very related. Um, one is that as I was trying to think about how to study, um, you know, uh, anti-colonial intellectuals of this era, um, works on the history of India, of course, come to mind. Partha Chatterjee is is first and foremost there. Um but the, the kind of work being done on India um, in post-colonial studies was, was totally inspiring and interesting to me. Um, and at the same time, when I s- sort of tried to use that as a model uh, for thinking about these late 19th century Filipino intellectuals, I realized that some of the, the differences were so significant um, that that model didn't didn't quite work or it didn't work in the same way. Um, And part of that has to do with the ways that um, Spanish colonialism was of a, at this point of a particular kind and it, and it, and it was not, um, it was not one that was deeply connected with these scholarly practices in a way that when you look in India, um, it is. So, so um, there are many very interesting works on Orientalism um, as it's connected to English colonialism in India, as well as the ways that it's connected to um, Indian intellectuals' um, work in a similar period. But that Orientalism that those Indian intellectuals were using was for the most part a British Orientalism, very connected to the state, whereas these young Filipinos 
um, were not, uh, as I say at some point, well studied, as it were, by their colonizers, Spain. Um, the Spanish scholarly world was not, um, I mean, in the way that these Filipinos came to, to view it, was not up to the speed of what was going on in the rest of Europe. Um, so in a way, the, that comparison seems significant to me. Um, and the other reason it, it was significant to me was partially because, um, so it partially has to do with, with that historical difference. It also has to do with a historiographic difference or a, um, where um, contemporary scholarly literature is, because so much is about colonialism and post-colonialism is, um, is focused on South Asia, which is not to say that it shouldn't be or that, you know, there, there aren't incredibly interesting and compelling things about that. There are, of course. Um, but again, I realized when, when, looking elsewhere, the contours of that, um, you know, one might call it late colonial intellectual scene or a kind of anti-colonial um, intellectual um, moment. Those contours look a little bit different elsewhere. So that was part of why I wanted to set up the India comparison was in part because I kept going there myself and yet it didn't quite work in the ways that I I had expected it would. I think the juxtaposition that you offer in the book is really great. And for someone like myself who's read a lot on South Asia as well, it was it's quite striking uh, the the differences between the Filipino setting and that of uh, India. And it really goes a long way to explaining, at least the way I read the book, uh, a lot of the reasons that the uh, Oriental the the, the illustrados and the propagandists adopted these uh, modes of scholarly activity that you explore throughout the book. So uh, for me, at, at least as a, as a reader of the book, I was really impressed by this uh, aspect of the work and the way that you set up the study of the case that follows. So maybe we can go to those, those genres uh, and, and the, or the, rather the disciplines that you work through mm -hmm. in the subsequent chapters. And to repeat, you've mentioned them already, but uh, they are ethnology, folklore, philology, and history. And if you don't mind, I'd like to reorder them uh, for this conversation and begin with philology, which uh, you say was really at the heart of Orientalist studies in the period in which the book is set. So what was the philology of 19th century Philippines and why was it so important both for the Orientalists and also for their Filipino counterparts? So um, philology is, is a, um, at this point, I'm, I'm actually not even sure what the contemporary re resonance is um, because it's such a, in some ways it's such an antiquated a sort of um, scholarly practice. And yet it, it does have traces in all kinds of contemporary um, uh, disciplines as well. Um, but philology is really the study of the history of languages and, and how they change over time. And it was um, quite important in 
again, I, I refer to it as this kind of classical orientalist moment of, uh, of the 18th and 19th century, um, partially because of that, that um, discovery, although that using that word is, is disputed in much the way, same way it is for uh, the Americas, but this discovery of um, the relationship between um, languages of India and languages of Europe. So the discovery of the relationship between Sanskritic uh, languages and European ones changed very fundamentally the way that Europeans thought about their the relationship between European peoples and Indian ones. Um, and that was, a, I mean, just a absolutely huge moment in European intellectual history. Um, by the 19th century, those, those practices were, were well entrenched, those practices being um, comparing, you know, p- comparing words, across languages to see similarities um, a little bit less so comparing grammars or at least that wasn't um, particular that that wasn't as important uh, for those um, for the kind of Filipino uh, works that I look at but comparing words and trying to think with that about what it shows about the relationships between peoples, the historical development of um, uh, people um, and the relationship between groups that in the contemporary world appear to be speaking different languages, right, are speaking different languages, but using these methods of philology that you can trace back and find common ancestry and that was um, for uh, these Filipinos, as I as I write about, it was a, a way to find a kind of um, natural, if you will, um, pre-European, pre-Spanish uh, unity um, that that was not um, the depend that that they could find in the actual living languages. So by looking at the languages, by tracing their historical connections, they could posit this this common ancestry across these various contemporary peoples and languages of the Philippines. Um, and so that move is a pretty, I mean, that makes sense. That's a pretty obviously kind of proto-nationalist move, right? Deposit some um, ancient commonality. Where they ran into trouble was, of course, um, the commonalities ran across the borders of the Philippines as much as as they did within them. So um, the relationship between Filipino languages and other Malay languages was, um, was one that, that they were looking at and thinking about and interested in and, and wrote about. And it, so it wasn't that they had a very um, simplistic approach to that kind of pre-Hispanic Filipino unity at all. It was, it was far from that. They also disagreed about um, exactly what the relationship were between different peoples of the Philippines, kind of 
who was in and who was out, as it were, although there were some common exclusions, which are um, which are going to be familiar to to anyone who knows about Philippine politics and history. But but typically um, Muslims managed to be thought of often as different from Filipinos, even though um, these uh, by many of the practices and categories of these sciences, they would be thought to be racially Malay. Um, their their um, languages, you know, were in relationship to um, Chinese, uh, of course, uh, were excluded. And then there was a very complicated relationship um, that they uh, these intellectuals had had often different ideas about between the kind of um, lowland peoples of the Philippines and the the people who lived in the highlands, some of whom were and often are still today thought to be very racially different. Um, and different of these authors came up with different kind of solutions to that puzzle. Um, but But as they were thinking about those questions, they were thinking in those um, categories that came out of, of these old practices. Um, so philology, again, specifically looking at languages, at words, and at the relationships between those languages historically. Who would they tell us in a few words about some of the key protagonists uh, in this particular scholarly discipline? Well, um, in philology especially, or the, the study of language, um, um, some of the people, I mean, uh, TH, some of these people are people who recur uh, in other chapters in the book, but TH Pardo de Tavera is certainly a central figure here. He was a um, young Filipino who, who actually went to this famous Orientalist School of Languages in Paris. And so he had a very specific kind of training in philology. Um, and he was really doing some some very pioneering work on looking at a relationship between um, between vocabularies of Filipino languages and Sanskrit, interestingly, um, but also relationships among those languages. Um, Jose Rizal didn't technically have a um, a kind of Orientalist language training in that same way, but he was uh, uh, famously um, uh, able to take up many different kinds of uh, scholarly practices, and and he became quite interested in in the the in some of the implications of Pardo de Tavera's research. Um, other people also, um, you know, s- used those those philological um, that philological a- evidence, even though they weren't necessarily, you know, trained as um, philological scholars. So Isabella de los Reyes is another who certainly used in his various writings um, language, the relationship between words as evidence of connections between peoples and kind of um, as evidence of uh, of especially kind of prehistoric connections between peoples. 
Rizal, you write, chose the the new orthography that Pardo de Tavera uh, designed for uh, one of his famous novels. And it wasn't until I read this that the significance of the letter K, which also features in the title of this chapter, is K, a foreign agent. Uh, It wasn't until then that the significance uh, really fully struck me. So can you explain briefly about the importance of K (laughs) as a foreign agent, a title that Um, is at once mysterious but also not at all obscure? um, I I would love to. I I will say this is is actually the first part of this project that I wrote up, and it probably is still my favorite. Um, But it's partially because it was just, again, such a kind of surprising piece for me to find. And that's um, in amongst amongst the writings in the newspaper La Solidaridad. And La Solidaridad, or Solidarity, was a propaganda newspaper um, that these young Filipinos who were pushing for reforms. At this point, it was really, there was still an imagination that there may be a a positive future for the Philippines as part of Spain. Um, And that was kind of the aim of this um, group that was in Spain uh, to put out a newspaper that would promote um, that possibility in Spain, um, and also uh, that was being snuck back and, and distributed in the Philippines. But at any rate, in the pages of that that newspaper, Jose Rizal wrote this piece about spelling, essentially, about what he called the new orthography. Um, and I was quite puzzled by that and thought, you know, I, and it in some ways, I'll put it this way, as compelling a case as he makes it, I thought, why is he taking his time in thinking about whether to use a K or whether to use a C or Q um, to stand for that K sound? Um, and I mean, partially tracing through his writings, partially in finding other documents, I realized that that was really coming out of the ways that um, especially Pardo de Tavera had, um, but also Rizal had studied how European Orientalists were transliterating, um, meaning writing in what we call the Roman alphabet, um, the sounds and the letters of, of... um, certainly Sanskrit, um, but other languages that aren't written according to, you know, that aren't written in the Roman alphabet. Um, and the linguistic practice was uh, for consistency, and that k sound would always be rendered with, with K. Um, so these um, Orientalist accounts of um, or not accounts, but books about the Sanskrit language would render all of those k sounds with K. Um, when Pardo de Tavera was looking at the relationship between some Sanskrit words and Tagalog words, for example, he would have to, in a sense, uh, write the same word. You know, it might sound the same, but it would be spelled different because in Tagalog, which was transliterated by the Spanish according to Spanish orthographic rules, which use C or Q-U, depending on the vowel that uh, follows it. So the same word would essentially appear in two different spellings. 
And it turns out that both Pardo de Tavera and Rizal kind of looked at that and got a very vivid sense of how, in their mind, how irrational um, the Spanish orthographic system was for spelling Tagalog words. And the, the Solidaridad article by Jose Rizal is largely oriented towards thinking about children's education. And he says, look, it would be so much easier for children to learn how to spell their own language if it were spelled in this eminently sensible way. Um, and so, so I was, I was t- quite taken by that, but then also um, struck by uh, how that new spelling, if you spell Tagalog with Ks instead of Qus and Cs, it also um, makes the Spanish loan words that are part of the Tagalog language look a lot less Spanish. Um, so it changes the look of the Spanish words. And in a sense, it really makes them Tagalog words and not Spanish words. Um, and part of the way that this became so apparent to me was I was also looking at many, um, there were a lot of bilingual newspapers in Manila at this time. It was a really um, amazing kind of uh, decade or so when a bunch of bilingual newspapers would appear and then disappear. I mean, it was a very um, ephemeral uh, thing often. But I was looking at those bilingual newspapers and looked at this one that adopted the new orthography. And I was struck by how those, um, if you looked on the Spanish, on the side of the page that was the Spanish, you saw all of these you know, Spanish words. And then if you looked on the side of the page that was Tagalog, um, where the, the Tagalog would use the Spanish word as a loan word, it was kind of instantly transformed into a Tagalog word, even though it would, you know, one would say it in the same way. Um, and once I started thinking about that, I, I thought about contemporary t- Tagalog, which is actually spelled uh, with K's and not C's and Q's and and thinking about when did that change happen and why and and how is it that it was introduced at this time and yet all of um, there were also still a lot of um, old Tagalog you know, kind of late 19th century early 20th century Tagalog was written in the Spanish style so then I, I kind of found this little controversy that a, a, a that emerged in one of these bilingual newspapers over how to spell the Tagalog language and was it anti-Spanish to be spelling it with Ks? Was it anti-Tagalog to be spelling it with Ks? Um, and that kind of controversy, that story and that controversy is really the subject of of that chapter. Thus, the title is K for an Agent, um, which I should uh, give credit to Derek Hall, my uh, my colleague at Cornell, I think, first came up with that with that title for me way back when for that chapter. Well, nicely done with the title, but also I think the contents of the chapter and the account mm-hmm. of this so-called little controversy really is a very lively one. And as you say, thinking about the controversy in the present day, it's 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 striking uh, given the degree to which the 
the uh, the new orthography became accepted through the uh, modern education system of the 20th century. Let's go to the next chapter, um, if, if that's all right. And Sure. Uh, I, I hmm. might just add one thing, if Please I may, um, when, it, when you uh, mentioned, you know, given the kind of these controversies in some ways resonate in the contemporary in, in different ways. Um, most recently, I was reminded of this, but I thought, okay, that's that's really neat, totally unlike but related to what I what I was writing that chapter. Um, the K in in Filipino is, is typically used in many Filipino languages, although some Filipino languages have the C and the Q use. Um, and interestingly. Um, I was recently reminded of this with the term Cordillera. So Cordillera referring to the mountains, highland mountains of, of central Luzon, which I would be spelled with the Spanish sea. Um, but the Tagalog version uses a K for Cordillera. Um, whether one calls something Cordillera with or Cordillera with a K in, in the Cordillera indicates something about one's Manila centricism, I'll say. Um, in other words, because, it, because Tagalog there is a kind of imperial language. I mean, it's also a national language, um, but, uh, but the, the C would, in, in a sense, be more local, and the K there would be, would be the foreign, but it's the foreign Tagalog rather than the foreign, the foreign um, Orientalist German. So, right, which in some way does go to some of the uh, features of the debate that you describe in that chapter. Right. Uh, let's talk briefly about uh, ethnology and how it's distinguished from ethnography, and mm -hmm. what were the uses of ethnology for propagandists, illustrators, and Orientalists. So ethnology um, and ethnography, those terms are sometimes slippery and certainly historically were so, um, but to, um, but in a kind of shorthand, ethnography, especially at this time, referred to a kind of more specific study of a people, whereas ethnology was the comparative study of the relationship between peoples or um, or the history of that relationship. So, so, and, and what was mostly interesting to these young Filipinos was the ethnology side, because of course it was in the histories of relationships that they could see or could find and see and, and document um, com commonalities among people of the Philippines. Um, so the, the the other interesting thing about ethnology, um, and especially this was actually very much emerging at this time, was um, an, a kind of idea that certain kinds of evidence, certain kinds of data, if you will, um, could be used to understand, to distinguish one one people from another and to understand the connections between them. So that data might be linguistic. That data might have to do with folklore and mythology. Um, but that data might also be 
physical properties, skin color, hair color and texture, um, you know, famously, of course, um, skull shape and size was also considered to be a, another kind of marker that could distinguish um, and also um, indicate relationship between peoples. And this and and all of these things were things that interested these young Filipinos. Um, they're also the kinds of this emerging sort of practice of how to study peoples, these were used particularly on um, on the peoples that were thought to be the primitives, if you will, um, which puts these Filipinos in an odd position of, of course, um, always at some level um, being in the position of having to kind of argue against um, the Philippines being full of primitives. And on the other hand, actually using some of the sciences that were associated with uh, the study of such peoples at the same time. Um, and again, this, this often um, got them into somewhat awkward situations in their writings, in the ways that they would write about um, peoples of the Philippines and drawing uh, connections and, and distinctions among them. Um, but it's one of the things that was quite interesting uh, to me. But again, so that, that general distinction is that ethnography is a kind of work about a people, whereas ethnology is that more comparative practice. And aside from the authors who you've mentioned already, uh, did ethnology have some uh, other key representatives that you'd like to mention? Well, certainly one of the people um, whose work I treat prominently in that, that chapter is um, Pedro Paterno. And Pedro Paterno is a, a really um, troubling character to work with, I'll, I'll say, or to, to write about and, or, and, and to think about. And that's, I say, troubling because some of what he writes is um, – and and he was also for many of his contemporaries. Um, famously, he was uh, certainly privately um, mocked for being a little bit of a blowhard, I think, and and a dilettante. Um, but but at times publicly held up as an example of you know here's a young Filipino. He's just published a novel. He's just published this historical study. Um, so held up by the propagandists also. Um, in a, in a kind of, in a more public way. Um, but he was very interested in thinking about trying to come up with a kind of racial history of the Filipinos and, um, and his account of it is, is to come up with a, an idea of the origin of this, um, ancient and glorious Tagalog race, um, which of course he himself, uh, uh, claiming this, you know, ancient and glorious Tagalog ancestry stood to benefit um, from such a characterization. Um, but it's also an interesting account where he uses, um, gets into all of this sort of, um, what for me were quite obscure French uh, writers and, and in digging through, trying to dig through those references, I realized he was, 
he was um, reading and referring to what were then very contemporary debates in France about who was French and how did you distinguish Frenchness and was France, uh, was, was the French race a pure race or an impure race? And as you might imagine, those questions in France in the late 1880s were all about the place of Jews in France. Paterno manages to cite these people and kind of take little bits of quotations from them and turn their arguments to use for um, the purposes of creating this idea of an um, ancient Tagalog race that has its origins in this, uh, in a racial mixture, but that then becomes a race with its own um, kind of properties. And, and tracing those threads became something of an obsession for me um, and, and, and something that I also found it fun to do. But that's part of why I say he's, he's a troubling character because he really was, um, I'll say, embracing a lot of the worst of, you know, of kind of racialized thinking at the time and using it in these uh, ways that were... Um, that we're reproducing some uh, kinds of racial hierarchies within the Philippines as well. We've been talking about these um, elite nationalist Filipinos. Uh, did they have European counterparts, patrons or fellow travelers intellectually who also worked with them on their publications, whether in the disciplines we've mentioned already or in history or folklore? Um, well, they they certainly did, and and the one who who really stands out in an exceptional name in in an exceptional way is Blumentritt. Um, Blumentritt was this um, Bohemian, Bohemian in the literal sense, ethnologist, um, uh, if I can say that. He had never been to the Philippines, but loved it. Um, was the preeminent, you know. European scholar of the Philippines and also was was a friend and patron to many of these young Filipinos, some of whom would, you know, make it to his little village to visit him. Um, and so he's a very um, interesting figure. And I, and I really think that 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 connection accounts for some of the um, predominance of German language scholarship within these young Filipinos um, orbits, um, even though many of them did not read German, but it, but um, through Blumentritt, um, some of those connections were made. So I'm thinking, for example, here of Isabella de los Reyes. No, I don't, I, I do not think he knew German and there's no indication that he did, but in some ways through the references that were made available to him through Blumentritz and others' works, he was familiar with, with that uh, scholarship. So, so Blumentritt is certainly a very important one. Um, in other respects, um, there were some, and here again, I'm thinking of Isabella de los, the young Filipino Isabella de los Reyes, who's probably my favorite subject in the book, as a reader can probably tell. Um, 
He was also in touch with uh, Spanish folklorists, which we could talk about more in, in, in a moment when we turn to that to that chapter. But for the um, ethnology side, it, it certainly was Fernand Blumentritt who who was really sort of the patron and um, and colleague of these young Filipinos. Well, why don't you carry on with uh, De Los Reyes um, before we uh, run short of time? Briefly set out why you found him so attractive as a subject of research and maybe something about this relationship between folklore and universal science. So, um, so De Los Reyes is, is just incredibly fun to read. Uh, and part of that is because he... Um, He's a little bit of a different figure, and and Ben Anderson also has um, famously and excellent uh, written about De Los Reyes. So I'm sure many listeners already um, know something about him, even if they've never read his works. Um, but he was um, he did not go to Europe during this period. He did later as a prisoner, but um, but during this period he hadn't gone to Europe. Um, he so in a sense one might say he's, he's not sort of quite as elite as some of these other folks um but he he did um correspond with and and kind of struck up a, a friendship with Blumentritt um in part because Blumentritt had read some of the stuff that he was publishing um and that he was writing and publishing along these lines and found him an interesting guy so um de los reyes um became interested in folklore as um, in part as a way to to understand the connections between peoples of the Philippines, but also in a way because it was a, a, a practice that documented knowledge of the people. Um, and he, he was a fierce um, Democrat, and I mean that in, in a deep sense, not in a contemporary uh, political sense. Um, and he he was he was very interested in kind of popular knowledge and popular lore. And that's of course what folklore literally means. Um, and so he started um, documenting folklore of the Philippines, which really nobody had done. And, and he was, and he was doing that very much according to the kind of um, guidelines and practices of um, folklore in Spain, which was a very significant uh, movement at this time. And, and he was in touch, as I, as I mentioned, with some of those Spanish folklorists. And part of the reason I think that folklore was so important in Spain was because it was um, – Spain itself was a very um, – regionally as a, a, a nation with very strong regions and different ra- languages and um, and very intense local patriotisms as well and uh, folklore was in a sense of a, a way that one could study um, one could study Spanish folklores there was not thought to be a Spanish folklore in the in the singular it was conceived of as a kind of umbrella term that would look at the relationship between all of these local practices and so in that sense the philippines was one of these spanish places that had folklore and and isabella de reyes was looking also at the connections um among uh the different folklores of the Philippines. So he and and he got some other young Filipinos interested in in doing um, that kind of work as well. So he was um, 
you know, collecting stories, uh, documenting beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. He also, though, found it um, quite, and it's quite obvious reading some of his writings, a a convenient way to um, critique contemporary politics. Um, And some of the things that he writes that are ostensibly folklore um, are really just very blatant social political social commentary that he managed to get published in Manila in the newspapers, essentially, I I guess, because it was titled Folklore. Um, And I think also the censors were not always so on it. Um, But so uh, that's part of the reason why I was, I find him so compelling. And he also just, he has a good sense of humor, uh, which one one often sees. So as I said, yes, he's certainly a, a favorite of mine. Right. Uh, I think at this juncture, we're going to leave uh, the listeners to take a look at the Lessons of History chapter for themselves and rest assured that there's plenty more in there to engage with. Uh, certainly uh, reading about Rizal uh, and his scholarly work as against the uh, fiction that he's best known for, for me, was, uh, was a real eye-opener and, uh, and a great way to conclude the book as well. Um, Perhaps we can turn to what you've been working on since the time of the publication in the book in 2012 and um, what we can look forward to from you next before we close. Um, Well, I'm, uh, of course, I'm very excited to be able to talk about that. And and conveniently also, it's an interest that I developed out of a small piece of that history chapter. So without hijacking the question, I'll just mention there's one, and it also is, um, it's Isabella de los Reyes that put me onto this um, project, really, which is he writes about um, a revolt in Ilocos in the late 18th century, um, the Diego Silang revolt. It's, it's a well-known uh, today, but he writes about this ro- revolt as if it were the French Revolution, I mean, he says more or less the words, the French Revolution before the French Revolution, um, it was going to be not just a um, anti-colonial revolt, but it was going to be a class, uh, total reorganization of the class system. Um, Diego Silong was going to kick out both the British and the Spanish. Um, and the way that Silong wrote about this revolt, I thought, my God, I have to learn about that. That's absolutely fascinating. And of course, it is absolutely fascinating. And, and I um, have begun to do research on that, but also quickly found um, that this revolt happened during a very brief period at the end of the Seven Years' War when the British occupied Manila. Um, Not surprisingly, when the British occupied Manila and word spread to the provinces, it was an occasion for... um, uh, for such revolts, right? The um, Manila had fallen uh, to the Spanish. So depending on how you looked at it, either that might be, so we know the Spanish are vulnerable, or it might be, so we need to defend um, our local town from these Spanish officials who apparently are not to be trusted um, in defending defending a city for the Spanish king. So anyway, I started looking at that and, and then also became quite interested in the British occupation itself, which it turns out was carried out um, mostly with troops. Well, 
with troops who all of whom came from what was then Madras, um, now Chennai in India, most of whom were Indian, many of whom were French deserters, actually. Um, so this incredible, um, um, you know, motley crew, if you'll forgive the phrase, uh, that the British brought over, many of whom deserted, about half of their troops deserted. So it was kind of a disaster for the British, even though it was technically a success. Um, and then meanwhile, it turns out that the British occupation um, for the British was really all about um, an opportunity to pursue the possibility of setting up a trading base somewhere in the Sultanate of Sulu. So it was, if you will, a kind of diplomatic opportunity as well to negotiate with uh, the Sultan of Sulu and try and make arrangements while um, waiting for the war to end. So I'm working on a project now that has to do with the connections between all of these things, between the... Um, kind of British imperial imagination of this part of the world at that time um, between the unsettling of sovereignty in Manila and, and the implications that had um, in the provinces. So Diego Silong's revolt itself is, is one part of that, but has become a relatively small part of, of this new project. Wow. Um... It sounds like there's a lot that's going to come into that <laughs> publication as well. And uh, quite apart from getting another opportunity to read about the hero of vegan, uh, I'm <laughs> sure that uh, we'll learn a great deal more about uh, the, the larger colonial and orientalist project uh, in Southeast Asia through that study. So, Megan, um, thanks again for, for speaking to me today about orientalist propagandist and illustrados. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, also for listening. We've been talking on new books in Southeast Asian studies. I do hope you'll join me, Dick Cheesman, for another conversation with an author soon.